Hey, this is Mark A. Altman. This is Darren Doctorman, and we are the Inglorious Trexperts. See, I thought it was a classic femme fatale. Just so much fun. Like that Shakespearean lace in your acting. I said, Gene, what do you want from this character? I want you to just take the character and make it your own. <laughs> <laughs> I had a good time on the film. On day one, the movie was already $15 million over budget. We started this movie without an ending. That's like painting yourself into a corner. I don't think we've ever had a Star Trek oh, captain on our true. show. Being, as you said, number one of the, on the call sheet, it is a producer's position if you're going to take it seriously. I was so glad they didn't cast me as Lorca. <laughs> <laughs> you famously wrote that script in 12 days. On one level, I wrote the script. And on another level, the story was written by everybody and sure. his brother. New episodes every Saturday, wherever you listen to podcasts, or download the Electric Now app. Keep on trekking. Ingloriously, of course. Inglorious Trexperts, the only podcast for fans with a life, is available every Friday, wherever you listen to podcasts, and on the free Electric Now app. Download it today. If you felt a great disturbance in the force, you're not wrong. My new book, Secrets of the Force, is now available in hardcover, digital, and audio from St. Martin's Press. And check out my other great oral histories with Ed Gross of Star Trek, The 50-Year Mission, So Say We All, The Complete Oral History of Battlestar Galactica, and Nobody Does It Better, The Complete Oral History of James Bond and Spymania, all available in hardcover, paperback, digital, and audio wherever you buy your books. Sundays on Electric Now. Tune in to the official Leverage Redemption After Show, a very distinctive podcast with me, Yell Teagle, and my co-host, Felicia Michelle. Each week, we'll be breaking down another episode of Leverage Redemption. Plus, we've got exclusive interviews with the stars, as well as some games, and we'll even be showing off some amazing fan art. So after you watch Leverage Redemption on IMDb TV, you'll definitely want to join us here to catch all the Easter eggs and behind-the-scenes fun. The official Leverage Redemption After Show, a very distinctive podcast. Sundays on Electric Now. If you like listening to this podcast, you'll love watching us on Electric Now, the free video streaming app featuring video versions of all your favorite Electric Surge podcasts, along with full seasons of The Librarians, Leverage, the exclusive Leverage Redemption After Show, as well as Flash Gordon serials, hysterical comedy specials, and much more. Download it today from your favorite app store or watch us on Roku, Stir, DistroTV, Zumo, Sling, or Plex. An act of aggression. She came at me like an animal. She would have killed me. Hides a sinister secret. Seven, what are you so afraid of? But the truth. He violated me. Must be judged. Uh, what are you saying? That Seven is making this up? And the pain relived again. He's not an innocent man. And again. I know what he did to me. I want him to be punished. On the next Star Trek Voyager. Hi, this is Peter Holmstrom. And this is Lisa Clank. And this is the Trexperts Briefing Room, Voyager Squadron. Back with another exclusive podcast commentary for an episode of Star Trek Voyager. Um, one of the great thrills for me doing this podcast has been the ability to interview and have conversations with people who I've been fans of and idolized for most of my life. And today's <laughs> guest is, is possibly the peak of that idolized mountain <laughs> thing. We'll just say uh, he was the creator of such of just about probably the best TV show of the last decade, um, NBC's Hannibal. 
um, as well as creating such cult classics as Pushing Daisies and the show that really needs Blu-ray release, uh, Wonderfalls. Um, and he's currently working on a new film adaptation of the Stephen King novel, Christine. But before all that, he got to start working on Star Trek World. If you haven't figured out who I'm talking about yet, it is Mr. Brian Fuller. Thank you so much for being here today, sir. Hello, thank you for having me. It's uh, it's always a joy to have conversation about Star Trek and particularly with you and the beloved Lisa Klink. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. This episode is going to be fascinating because... Um, We've we've had episodes, uh, commentaries with with Lisa about her episodes and, and other writers about their episodes. But this is one of the first times we've done um, an episode with two writers on it who worked on the same episode. And so this will be an interesting look into the collaborative process of working on Star Trek. Um, so the episode today for listeners out there is Star Trek Voyager Season 4, Episode 17, called Retrospects. Um, guys, before we get into it, um, do you recall like what was some of the early process of uh, of this episode in terms of the writing? Was it was it did it come in as a pitch? Was it something that came up in the room? How did that all start? Well, it it, it definitely came up as a pitch. It was it was uh, Mark Gaberman and Andrew Price uh, came in uh, to pitch it, and as with any of the pitches, uh, and Lisa can attest to this, that they evolve pretty dramatically from from what is their 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 pitch of origin and how it becomes developed to, you know into considerations of what's happening with the characters that the pitchers would have no idea mm-hmm. uh, of of what was going on internally to the show like i remember coming in pitching before i got hired on staff uh to jerry taylor and i i was obsessed with that guy <laughs> and so i was like I've got a whole lot of Seska pitches. And like, she's dead. <laughs> I was like, okay, well, um, scratch that. Yeah. Sometimes you do need to just roll with it. Yeah. It, uh, it's, it, the, the pitching process was actually really interesting. I mean, that's how, uh, you know, I got in, um, was, uh, first the open submission policy and then being invited into pitch. So that process is something that was, really uh, delightful and inspiring and um, and also then to be on staff and be on the receiving end of the pitches yeah because you you know you have all of these people who are really excited about Star Trek and you know aren't necessarily in the door but are looking through the window <laughs> and um, that was uh, always fascinating to be a part of do you remember the first time you took a pitch Lisa the first time I took a pitch, um, I don't actually. Um, but uh, <laughs> I mean, I remember giving a pitch, you know, and, and pitching myself. But I, I don't remember the first time I actually took a pitch from somebody else. But I'm sure I was very sympathetic. Yeah, I, well, I, I do remember the pitch for your birthday where uh, <laughs> we hired strippers to come in and pitch, and then they disrobed and gyrated, and every all everybody in the art building like descended on your office. And I, <laughs> oh my <like> god! <laughs> probably yep. something that wouldn't happen today and wouldn't happen now. So there's a lot about this conversation that I think is going to be uh, things that would not happen today. Yes. Although I did think the strippers were pretty hysterical. I mean, they first came in and they pretended to be pitching. So they start with, okay, so we're on the bridge. <laughs> kind of stuff. Like, you know, this would be better with music. And then they put on their music. <laughs> and then they get up and start stripping. It was hilarious. Oh, my God. <laughs> I have pictures. Wow. Yeah. 
Lisa, I've known you for years now, and you've just now bringing this up. My God. <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs> All right. Well, on that note, um, let's get into it. Uh, listeners, again, we are watching season four, episode 17 of Voyager Retrospect. And we will be syncing up our playback right here um, with a countdown. Um, all right. Hey, should I turn my volume down? You know, a little bit. If you it, just make sure it's not super loud, we can we can have a little bit of volume. But um, okay. I, mean, I just turned on uh, subtitles for mine. Yeah, that's what. Oh, I that's, a, uh, that's a yeah. good idea. Okay, subtitles English on. Here we go. And uh, for listeners out there, you can watch this on just about every streaming app out there: Amazon, Netflix, uh, Paramount Plus. Uh, of course, the best way to to watch it is by getting the DVD, and because uh, that gives Lisa and Mr. Fuller a little bit of money, just just maybe a little bit more than, than the streaming services. I don't I don't know how well that works actually, but <laughs> all right, guys. So, season four, episode seventeen, and we'll do a countdown here: three, two, one, and play. All right. So, uh, so much of this evolved after the the initial pitch of yeah. um, uh, Gaberman and Price, who were regulars who came in to pitch to Star Trek a lot, and there were a few of the ideas. I like. I believe they have uh, the honor of being the origin of Tuvix as well. I think you're wow. right. <laughs> Which, you know, that episode is crazy. And, you know, uh, we should talk about that at some time because it's something that had no right to be as great as it was based yeah. on the kind of transporter uh, malfunction, but turned out to be one of the most discussed episodes of Star Trek Voyager yes. that was ever done. Absolutely. So true. And I think more talked about now more than ever, really. I mean, it's, uh, yeah. Continually oh, the popped memes, up. The memes yes. are hilarious. <laughs> uh, you, you know, there's there's so many like, two bigs didn't want to die memes that are, are <laughs> wonderful. But I guess we can talk about retrospect. No, no, please go for it. Go for it. Lisa, what was your first recollection of this this story? I guess breaking it. Um, I remember. I think you and I talk. I, I don't remember whether this is mid break or or before talking about kind of the elements, at least the elements that intrigued me about this concept, which was the whole idea of um, having false memories. Right. Uh, you know, the McMartin school kids case had happened, and there was uh, a psychologist. Uh, Dr. Elizabeth Loftus, who had done a lot of research in implanting, you know, suggesting memories, you know, like you were lost in the mall when you were six years old. Don't you remember? And with enough suggestion, people did remember and they really thought it was fact. And that concept just fascinated me. Yeah, the, like, I remember being obsessed with the McMartin trials in the 80s. And they got me obsessed because it was during the whole satanic panic. Right. Yeah. And so I like like if you were talking about Satan, I was in. <laughs> I wanted my confirmation name to be Damien, but my mother would let me. <laughs> so uh, as a as a, a Catholic altar boy, I was all about anything sort of Satan related. Um, you know, from Rosemary's Baby to the Exorcist to the Omen, all of that stuff was was rich fodder. So 
uh, imagine my disappointment <laughs> that Satan wasn't actually involved in Satanic Panic. Um, and that was such a, you know, the, the notion of these implanted memories, because the interviews of the McMartin Party were very specific. They're like, it was the, the, the main, uh, I forget, uh, which McMartin, the, the sort of patriarch, the young patriarch of the McMartin family was accused of horrendous, horrendous things. And they were very specific, which is, you know, sort of, uh, as we all know, like a, a telltale of a good lie is just how detailed it is. And I remember things that they would have, um, the children draw turtles. And the reason that they drew turtles was because uh, the the McMartin patriarch would murder a turtle in front of the children and say, "If you told your parents about this, we this is what's going to happen to them. I'm going to crush them with my bare hands like I'm crushing this turtle." Yeah, uh, never happened. Yeah, uh, and another incident was they would have the adults in a circle and they would be standing sort of bull legged, and the children would be running around in a circle like a choo choo train through a tunnel underneath all their legs, and then randomly the Miss Martin patriarch would pick a child and sodomize them in front of the other children. So all of these things that were part of their satanic cult um, turned out to be completely false, but it did destroy the reputation of the McMartin tribe. Yeah. And so I think that was sort of the part of the impetus. I, I remember like that was the conversation when Jerry Taylor was in yeah. Like, that was the conversation about what Star Trek about this episode. And and then when she wasn't in the room, it was a much darker, more disturbing conversation because it wasn't about, like, let's explore these, you know, the, the fascinating qualities of implanted memories. It was about uh, these bitches who lie about being sexually uh, assaulted or uh, inappropriately touched. And at least I don't think you were in the room for these conversations because no. it was a very male conversation. And as the, you know, sort of resident, you know, gay guy on staff, uh, I think there was a perception that, like, because my genitals were on the outside, that I would be okay with such discourse. But honestly, it was it was it was really horrifying. And there were, you know, exec executive producers in particular who would talk about these women needing comeuppance for their lies. Uh, and so there were two agendas with this episode that were really in conflict. One was very star. And one was very uh, misogynistic and um, boys clubby in a way yeah. that was really disturbing. So as the the breaking of the story, we would, you know, Jerry Taylor was in the room for the breaking of the story. So everything was very, very scientific. And Lisa, you were in the room for the breaking of the story. So uh, I don't know why I was privy to these conversations. Um, but I remember thinking like, oh, that's not cool. And not knowing exactly how to navigate it. 
Mm. Yeah. Mm. Is that surprise you, or is that are you are you sort of like yeah, I buy it? Oh me, I I totally believe it. <laughs> Unfortunately, I I I do know who you're talking about, and I believe it. Mm. Yeah, it uh, it was a, it was an interesting time um, for all of these issues to be talked about because we were we were before an awareness and before mm -hmm. certainly the movement that changed how we talk about these things and you know the the notion of believe all victims uh or, or believe women yeah um was we hadn't really got there yet had we no we really hadn't mm. Well, and let me ask you both, since you're both writers here, I mean, because I think the episode leaves it a little ambiguous, you know, it's like, it, it, did this experience happen to Seven of Nine? Did it not? It, it kind of pivots and becomes about something else in the in the latter part of the episode. Um, from the writer's perspectives, uh, what, what's your take on it, you know? Well, my personal take is that, uh, is that there was maybe, I mean, we're skipping ahead a little bit in the episode here, but yeah. that... <laughs> You know, when when Seven was alone with the alien guy, Coven, I think, that there might have been some kind of like inappropriate behavior, but not a full on assault. Mm -hmm. um, and so when when Seven starts reacting with anxiety toward this guy and hostility, as we just saw when she decked him, um, what I found interesting was the doctor kind of saying this symptom has to have a cause. And the cause has to be you were assaulted. Yeah. And that process is, is the part that I found really interesting because I, I don't think that she was attacked in, in the way that she comes to remember. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. Like right now, like we're we're looking at the doctor scanning seven of nine, and he's holding up the medical tricorder uh, to her, and she's she's nervous and she's very uh, agitated by any kind of probing, probing or poking, and you know, Jerry Ryan is so good in this role and mm -hmm. it is a role that is um kind of stacked against her no pun intended uh <laughs> with her wardrobe and uh the fetishization of of who she is as a character and i would consider this a movie the fact that she really kind of transcended the aesthetic of Seven of Nine to create a human character is really a major feat Absolutely. that uh, cannot be ignored. Absolutely. And Agreed. That, that's something that, like, this episode kind of, I don't know if it's intentionally playing with it, but it, it's certainly a factor of, of the conversation and certainly a factor of the, you know, sub-agenda of of what was was kind of intended to um, disqualify or discredit a witness like that mm -hmm. there was that that was sort of the the B agenda the A agenda was you know to tell the story about you know trauma and how it kind of leaks out in places that you would least expect it or you know, you know perhaps 
She experienced uh, and then the the sort of misogynistic agenda of don't believe women because here's here's an example as as, as to why you shouldn't believe what somebody says and you know right. knowing what we know now of some of the things that were happening um, behind the scenes particularly like you know, some of the actors on on Deep Space Nine have been you know come forward and been very vocal about certain producers that made them uncomfortable and as a result they they've asked to be let out of their contracts because they just couldn't bear to show up to work and experience it uh, that they're that was all happening about this time. That was that was in the conversation. Yeah. Not that I was aware of because I wasn't, you know, at that level where I, I was privy to those conversations. But certainly later in uh, talking to people who worked on both Deep Space Nine and Voyager about some of the the behaviors of certain producers toward uh, uh, actresses that. Um, it becomes a little creepy, like the, yeah. the, 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 the timing of this episode around uh, those issues. ...created the finer points of both to create my own approach to memory reconstruction. What does this approach involve? First, putting you at ease by performing the treatment here in your own environment. Once the cortical probes have reinforced the neural pathways, I'll use a directed imagery technique to guide you through the regression. You may proceed. Please, close your eyes. Clear your mind. Try not to think or to analyze. My mind is now clear. Seven, this isn't an exercise in efficiency. Close your eyes. Breathe deeply. Now concentrate on the sound. So that, like, that's kind of like in the back of my head during the whole episode and watching it and, and looking at it again for this conversation was they're really trying to discredit women on a certain level in a way that is gross. Yeah. You know, it's it's always one of these weird things. So we look at Star Trek and it's it's so progressive for it, especially for the time that it came out. And yet it, it's always a little icky when you do hear about some of the behind the scenes things that, that went on there. And, you know, especially like you look at like season one of TNG and the whole Roddenberry sort of situation there. And it's, uh, it's always very sad. But. It's fascinating because there's the, the, the um, dysmorphia mm-hmm. of what you would think is um, progressives telling a progressive story and that you realize that no, sometimes uh, the progressiveness is just, you know, sheep's clothing. Yeah. Sure. Yes. Yeah. But I agree with you that Jerry Ryan really, you know, took the opportunity that we gave her in this episode to to shine. Um, that she did, you know, really transcend, like as you said, you know, kind of the the limitations that were put on her as as a person. Yeah, it really like it. It can't be said enough because, uh, particularly, like, you know, there's a, a history and heroes channel like channel 20 on my cable provider. And so like every night at 11 o'clock as I'm sort of like either coming up for a snack or winding down and brushing my teeth in the kitchen, uh, I watch Star Trek Voyager and I'm floored by the consistent quality of the actors and their performances and the authenticity of it. Like, you know, 
Bob Picardo, Jerry Ryan, Kate Mulgrew, and yeah. the rest. Uh, yeah. All of these people who were consistently delivering fine performances. And mm-hmm. it's like, I, I wonder, you know, it was interesting. Somebody tweeted about this episode like a year ago and mm-hmm. sort of mentioned that it was kind of like, hey, you know, what's up with this episode? <laughs> yeah. And uh, and um, I was CC'd on it, and I think uh, Jerry Ryan was CC'd on it. And I think my response was like, yeah, it was really fucked up and toned down. And, uh, you know, but this is, this is you know, 25 years ago? Yeah. 20, like 20 to 25 years ago. It was a while. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's interesting to sort of, be aware of what was happening in the late '90s, which was not that long ago, but it was twenty. Kind of was, ago. yeah, yeah. And uh, like, don't drag me into reality, Lisa. Uh, <laughs> but there was something about the. Um, I mean, it was so much change with Obama. You know, mm-hmm. and and in terms of our aware, our, our self awareness as Americans, we're. You know, we we weren't quite aware of how racist we still were. Like yeah. a lot of people were. Like if you were, you know, non-white, you certainly were violently aware of how racist we were. But for some of us who like, you know, travel in progressive circles, we just were not aware until we saw just mm-hmm. how violently racist and then violently misogynist that yeah. that we still are. Yeah. And so this is kind of an interesting time capsule for mm. how far we we thought we had come when really we hadn't at all yeah. you know, started the journey. Care to join me? You can make sure that the adjustments are performed. It's crazy to think about. Yeah, it is. I'd like to test some of the other firearms. Let me ask you a bit about the uh, the process of co-writing this episode. Like when you, was it a firmly a team up, like we're handed pages off to each other or was it more like one of you took a draft, handed it to the other and then you took the draft and back and forth? I remember at one point, I think, I guess it was in your office or my office, it doesn't matter, that I, I remember sitting at the computer and and you and I, you know, sort of tossing back and forth, you know, what about this? And how about she says that? And and you know, kind of transcribing what what we settled on. I don't think we wrote the whole script that way though. I think it it ended up being really kind of time consuming. <laughs> and, you know, uh, this is what, 16, 17, you know, number of episodes. So we were probably starting to get into the uh the panic zone of the season, <laughs> you know, as we got shorter and shorter time to write as we got toward the end of the season. So I I think we started like that, but we ended up, I think, swapping pages. Yeah, I mean, I remember distinctively sitting in your office and, you know, I was, I was very green and Lisa had a few years under her belt. Uh, and I was distinctively aware of what a great teacher Lisa was in terms of some very some very basics of how to organize a scene, and there was something that I remember sitting at, at your desk with you, and you were very generously and gently teaching me how to organize a, a scene structurally, and uh, I remember you know you you were like 
this is how to organize the ideas so that they're flowing as opposed to feeling like a scene had been hit by a tornado and that you're just stumbling upon the pieces randomly. <laughs> And it was it was it was very eye opening. I, I can remember it very specifically as a, a great learning moment where I was like, "Oh, I wasn't thinking of organization when I approached the scene," and that was something that Lisa taught me, uh, you know, early on in in uh, my tenure as uh, a staff writer that there are you know. There are certainly ways to organize and allow scenes to flow and pursue rising action and emotion within the story and the structure of, of any given scene. And I, I, I look back on that moment fondly going like, and feeling a light bulb go off because it was something that I just didn't understand about writing up until that point. And Lisa was like, hey, asshole, this is how we're done. <laughs> and uh, not that she called me an asshole. No, I didn't. But I should probably thought it. Uh, <laughs> uh, but uh, that was that was something that I was like, oh, good. Like, uh, you know, doing this episode, it's going to be fun to talk about because it was fun to write with Lisa, and Lisa was very good and kind to me in an environment that wasn't always good and kind. You know, it was it was a bit of a boys' club, and Jerry Taylor was moving, you know, away from her position as showrunner and sort of like allowing room for uh, other people to step into that role. So it was a tricky kind of political atmosphere that I didn't know how to navigate, and uh, and Lisa was very very. Very helpful, and it wasn't so much about the politics, but it was just like, here's how you can be a better writer. Here's how you can look at a scene and just be more structural in your thinking. And I, I repeat those lessons when I talk to other writers because I like, and I hear Lisa talking through me uh, about organizing a scene and organizing ideas and letting there be rising action and emotion within the context of the scene. That was all stuff that Lisa taught me. Well, I certainly had a fun time writing with you, and it was great when you joined the staff, because I wasn't the newbie anymore. <laughs> Just for, for context for people listening, I, I started in episode two, and uh, Brian came on in episode four, in, uh, sorry, season four. Uh, so I'd been there for just a couple of years and had, you know, was used to being the, the junior writer. And then I uh, got somebody else that I could push around. <laughs> yeah, it, like it definitely was sort of a, a wonderful camaraderie and yes. hung out a lot at, outside. I remember like we were going house hunting and we were talking about like, should we buy a house together? Yeah. Because like, <laughs> you know, like we you know, really got along. And yeah. Uh, there was uh, a genuine friendship mm-hmm. there that I'm glad that we've like recently kind of you know rekindled and um, are, are back in each other's lives more presently than we had been in a while because wonderful memories of working with Lisa. Yeah, we're not talking about conjecture. We're talking about That's awesome. That's amazing. Um, and this fucked up episode. <laughs> you know, I'm curious. Uh, this was uh, your third episode credited of, of of writing a teleplay for 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 Voyager, and uh, two of the three have a very Seven of Nine centric 
aspect to it. I'm curious, like, was it a uh, conscious uh, choice and or like saying like, I would love to take this episode because I like writing for Seven of Nine or was it more just the um, way the cookie crumbled and you got it? I think it was A, more the way the cookie crumbled because, uh, you know, I can't imagine raising my hand and declaring a desire or want and having it be met with anything but uh, um, ridicule <laughs> in, in that environment. Um, and so, like, the idea of, like, saying, like, making an I want statement or singing an I want song if it were a musical <laughs> was just not, you know. Oh, come on, a song would have worked. A song totally would have worked. Um, so it really was, I think there was an abundance of seven of nine stories, and that, that was definitely the kind of charge for uh, the, the producers to really um, make as much of her character as possible and uh, really bring her her to the foreground. So I think it was, you know, I think we were assigned this story. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, it was kind of, because, you know, at the time, um, it was a little heady and a little, you know, fraught with the, the duality of the agendas that were approaching the episode. So it wasn't one that I was like, oh my God, like, like this is this is my favorite episode. What was my favorite experience about it was working with Lisa, but the episode itself is is kind of and uh, problem like really problematic. <laughs> so it's hard to say like oh my you know I don't mention it in the same breath as Bright of Chaotic. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Lisa, I, I kind of want to ask you the same question though, because you had um, you've talked many times about how much you love writing the Doctor, and the Doctor at, uh, yeah. is is almost the B storyline of this one. And I wonder if was that something that was uh, in the room at, when you broke it, or was that something that you really brought to more more to fruition than maybe had been originally there? Well, I think because we we all did like writing for the Doctor because we all knew, of course, that Robert Carter would just knock it out of the park. I mean, he's um, and so when we were talking about the idea of of suggesting a memory and, you know, who would, who would she be working with? You know, we didn't have a ship's counselor. We didn't have anybody who was like the obvious confidant. Um, and so I think we went with the doctor who, you know, kind of fancies himself a psychologist because he's downloaded the correct files, you know, and that's, I think, I mean, he has, I think an interesting arc in this episode as well in that he does overstep his boundaries and that he does take on something that he's not really qualified to do, which is, you know, I think a, a moment of growth for the doctor. And, you know, as usual, as we expected, you know, Bob did a great job with it. I think that's a really important point because there is something in the, um, there is a cautionary tale for the doctor in the you know in the fucked up tone deaf version of this this episode uh where it is like no you shouldn't believe the women like like <laughs> see this is what happens if you believe them because they're you know they're so crazy and unstable that they will lead they will they will damage you as much as the person 
who they are accusing in in some way, and that was that was an interesting dynamic. I think I think you know Bob and Jerry both found real humanity and real uh, insights to their characters. Um, but it is a it is a like you know don't you know don't make a fool of yourself and and believe the woman. Because that's what will happen. You will like it. You will make an ass out of you and and me. Well, I I, I mean that's that is certainly one one thread of it. But I do think that that the doctor developing as a character and kind of trying to take on too much, and you know getting a little arrogant, you know as he was prone to do. Um, I, I guess I saw that more as as his character development in the episode. I, I agree. Like I think that's that, and, and I think that's what Bob really delivered and i'm sort of like going you know back to the the sort of uh uh you know dark room gentleman to evil kind of uh, uh aspect of of making this but you're absolutely right like it is it is a wonderful evolution in in terms of the doctor's character all things you know being equal or some things being removed from uh, the narrative agenda. It is the story of somebody who thinks that they know humanity mm-hmm. and discovers that they they may not be as uh, knowledgeable as they once assumed. Well, I think what so what makes the Doctor and Seven of Nine work so well together as as a, a team is that they are large. They, in some ways, they're at a similar place developmentally. You know, Seven has come from a Borg. She's never had to deal with things like. Um, thoughts that are that are her own, you know, and and yeah. dealing with with um and the doctor similarly, he's been able to develop a consciousness, but like how does how does one proceed with that when when you know you have knowledge, you don't necessarily have the 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 processes to to work through it all. So like this is a, a really interesting episode because they do um in some ways this is their first one where they're really like you see them working so well together, and it's easy yeah. to see why. The writers kept coming back to them as as a as a as a team um, as the series progressed. Well, there's something about the. I mean, you look at at most of the Star Trek series, and you know you you know what is the the Kirk Bone Spock dynamic, mm-hmm. and certainly in uh, um, you know Next Generation, it was very Picard and Data, and uh, they were the kind of the the lead emblems of, of you know the, the symbolism of humanity that was being explored and um, you know it, this show Voyager was really kind of boiled down to Janeway the Doctor and Seven of Nine and she had similar yet dissimilar relationships with both of them as the newbies as you so wisely pointed out that they're both relatively fresh to humanity and there's something about needing that level of guidance uh, that they sometimes are open to and sometimes they're not open to because both of them are arrogant characters mm-hmm. because yeah. they're really, really smart. But what they're not so savvy about is their own, you know, journey of humanity. Yes. That's kind of interesting because they're on, they're on sort of opposite paths in a way and that the doctor wants to be more human and wants to incorporate more into his program and, you know, hobbies and singing and romance and all that kind of stuff. He wants that. Whereas Seven, you know, at least at the beginning, is really 
pushing her humanity away and that she doesn't want it. You know, she sees it as a weakness and a vulnerability, uh, which, you know, unfortunately in this episode kind of proves to be true. Um, (laughs) And that it really is her humanity that that kind of, you know, messes her up. But but it's true that, I mean, they... I think that's that's one reason they kind of bounce off each other well is is how they regard their their more human side. Of this table, and they're like you know uh, an episode like latent image with the doctor and sort of his uh, perceptions, and there there is a kind of there is a a an interesting um, yin and yang to retrospect and latent image in terms of what we believe that we know and what we certainly are learned that perhaps we're not as as aware as we would assume. So um, it does feel like an interesting counter note, latent image mm-hmm. to, to this episode. And that was, you know, beautifully written by Joe Manowski in a sort of a Joe Manowski special. And, you know, one of the things that... that I love about Joe's writing is the there is an elegance to his uh, exploration of humanity because he is such a, a gentle odd duck of, of a writer and a human being and um, so yeah they have a, the seven of nine and and the doctor are on divergent parallel paths <laughs> yeah in many ways. And, um, you know, it's interesting with the character of Coven in, in retrospect, because he's kind of an asshole. Like he's the yeah. guy that you're you're not necessarily rooting for, and you're sort of hoping that uh, he gets his. And then of course, um, you know, it's the cautionary tale and and the, the remorse of uh, see what happens when you double down on your own convictions. <laughs> is that like, you know, you can hurt innocent people and even though they're an asshole, uh, that that they're still innocent. And I think that was also speaking to a certain agenda of, of what was happening behind the scenes of you know, certainly the, you know, the uh, people that we're talking about so surreptitiously um, were assholes. And I think they were sort of hiding behind the characterization of Coven as an asshole to say, like, sometimes you get assholes wrong. And, <laughs> you know, it's not always so cut and dry with an asshole. Uh, <laughs> you know, it, it depends on the power of the thinker, I guess, um, how cut and dry they are. Uh, but enough with potty humor. <laughs> we'd we'd, we'd uh, be, be remiss if we didn't mention that Coven is played by uh, Michael Horton. Who uh, was no strangers? He was what? I'm sorry. What's that? He heard a who? Yes. Never mind, Doctor Seuss. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That of course. No, no. I, I I'll make the connection eventually. <laughs> but uh, he had actually been a recurring uh, cast member for two of the Next Generation movies as well. Um, had been in First Contact and in Insurrection as the role of Lieutenant Daniels, um, and uh, also um, had a role uh, in the long-running television series Murder, She Wrote uh, is playing Jessica Fletcher's uh, nephew, Brady, who is constantly either being accused of murder or has a girlfriend who's being accused of murder or <laughs> boss is being accused of murder or something. So. <laughs> Didn't Brady ultimately do something and get caught, like after several sort of 
or am I just misremembering that? I, I, I think at one point he did do some like fraud or something, but he was so like innocent about it all. He, he kind of got away with it. So it's, um, <laughs> but it's funny to see him here because he played such kind of a, a small town bumpkin who was living in New York in Murder She Wrote, and then to see him in this one where it's like, oh yeah, no, you're, you're an asshole, awesome. So it's <laughs> interesting character arc. <laughs> Was he a security officer, like, when they were trying to retake the engineering deck? Like, was that, or was he the one that, like, sort of, like, crawled out of... Uh, no, he was the security security officer, and he has that moment in the trailer of First Contact where he's like, the Borg have taken over decks 15 and 16 or something like that. <laughs> it's just before Worf and Picard have their big confrontation. Um, if you were any other man, I would kill yes. you where you get. <laughs> God bless Michael Dorn. Yeah. He's amazing. Uh, one other bit of trivia is uh, the the writer Mark Gaberman, who's one of the the writing team that uh, brought us this pitch. Uh, he's actually a writer on Jeopardy now, really? and uh, yeah, yeah, uh, and has been for years now. Yeah. And uh, when I went to to try it for Jeopardy, um, you know, they ask you, "Do you know anybody who works at Sony or whatever?" And I had no idea that he was on staff there at, at Voyager. And so I didn't say anything, but apparently Mark did go to the producer and said, I pitched her an episode, you know, like, you know, 10 years ago. And they thought that it was, it was kosher, you know, that I wasn't going to be, you know, that he wasn't going to be favorite, accused of favoritism with me or anything like that. Mind that you believe what you're saying. That's amazing. <laughs> I wonder, like, if memory serves in the original uh, Price and Gaberman pitch on this, um, I feel like, and I could be misremembering this, but I feel like the the question of whether it was uh, real or not was that it was. And that was sort of like a big change from um, what the episode had become. That like that was the, the opportunity to make a point was... Um, that the, the pitch was, you know, these recovered memories and that they were real and that they led Seven of Nine on an investigation that was factual. And and I like I remember vaguely that that was one of the things that I was excited about because I'm always excited yeah. when things are real. It's always a disappointment <laughs> when it's a dream or it's, a, you know, a false memory. But I feel like there was a different story that was sussed out. Um, I, I think you're right. I think that, that at first we had been talking about recovering memories from, from her Borg past, you know, from, from the genuine trauma that she had been through, you know, being assimilated and all that kind of thing. And that, that sort of bubbling up to the surface and affecting her in the present. I, I think you're right. I think that was part of the pitch. Yeah, and then, like, you know, it got, you know, uh, agenda and you know it's not a, it's not a story that I, I'm like like I don't like this episode uh, but it is um, I feel like it's it's successfully doing some things that are definitely you know what Star Trek does and you know certainly has a you know as I said a lot of problematic associations. Yeah, no, it, it hasn't aged particularly well, but no, <laughs> yeah, it it, uh, it is definitely. Um, it's interesting because there are like it's unlike Tuvix, which has aged beautifully and actually uh, is a standout. 
Like this is sort of an odd kind of, um, I won't say unfortunate, uh, because there's so much that I I do love about it with Jerry and Bob's performance in particular, and also the experience of working with Lisa. Um, but it is it is it is it is not up there in terms of uh, my favorites. Yeah. You know, I will I will say though, I watched this episode a few weeks ago, and um, for probably for the first time, and. Um, what I found interesting is like structurally speaking, like for the first two thirds of the episode, it, it kind of tracks in a way that is somewhat familiar. You know, there's uh, it's kind of the classic Hitchcockian approach to a lot of these things. Like, you know, the person who has this belief of something, no one else believes her, you know, it's kind of going downhill. And the, the, for me, what it really got super interesting was that you kind of pivot away from, you expect her to find the smoking gun and you expect her mm -hmm. to be able to track down and get, get the bad guy in the end. And, and what I found interesting is that it does kind of pivot away from that a bit and becomes about um, something else. And, you know, there's definitely, it creates interesting conversations that, you know, we're having here today that, that hopefully other people have had over the decades. And it's like, that is what Star Trek does at its best, you know, just yeah. purely from a fan base perspective, not knowing anything about the politics of behind the scenes stuff or anything like that. But <laughs> um, it, it strikes me as, as just an interesting idea and definitely, you know, Jerry Ryan just brings in a stellar performance and Rob Ricardo is always great. And yeah. There's really cool stuff to play here. Yeah, the, like, and, and, you know, here's the, 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 the moment in the story where, of course, everybody has to feel bad yeah. for, for believing the wrong thing and that being the cautionary tale of, you know, the message of the movie is don't believe women. You know, uh, and uh, so that's, you know, it's interesting, particularly when you're looking at a female captain, you know, with a female crew member and and what it is, you know, on those levels of believing or not believing, uh, you know, the abused um, is worthy of conversation as well. Well, I was on another podcast that was talking about um, responsibility and leadership and, you know, specifically talking about, you know, the captains and Janeway. And they asked me about this episode, mm. um, you know, how did I feel like Janeway reacted? And I think that Janeway reacted the way you would want her to react, which is she immediately believes Seven and she says, let's investigate, let's get some proof. And she is behind Seven 100%. So I think from that point of view, you know, Janeway does what, what you would hope her to do. Yes. Yeah. And and it's interesting that uh, everybody believes, you know, yeah. at least initially. And and also that's the the sort of odd cautionary tale uh, that was that was being conveyed on on another level. Um, and you know, this like even this moment now where she's talking about like how she's assimilated you know, countless people and was responsible for their, you know, essentially their destruction that she never felt bad. And now like that she destroyed one man with a false accusation that it is uh, a new emotion to experience as the doctor does. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Enjoy this remorse any more than I enjoyed anger. Will the feelings subside? Remorse. Yes. We all feel it. <laughs> <laughs> I have to wait. 
I'm afraid to go. Now. It's so bizarre too how like I feel Jerry Ryan's just so good, and I feel like if if the, if Star Trek had been out now, twenty years later, like there just wasn't a whole lot of great roles for women, I think, in film, you know? So they kind of found great roles, like Janeway is an amazing character. And so many roles in Star Trek are great characters for women to play. But like today, you know, uh, I feel like she could have, tra- and she had a great career and she still has a great career, but yeah. it's, uh, I feel like she would have been such a, even a bigger uh, A-list star if, if this had been more today. Well, it's it's fascinating because we are like it does feel like in in movies that there are certainly still perceptual restrictions to Absolutely. the kinds of roles that people want to see women playing. Long way still to go. Yeah, but but television is is definitely leaps uh, ahead of that game, and in terms of uh, science fiction or fantasy or horror. These are genres that have consistently had strong roles for for women, and you know, like we started with you know Uhura and the original Star Trek, but there was never an Uhura episode. Like she was yeah. never central to any of the narrative. She was, uh, you know, she like she had a presence, and you know, Nichelle Nichols is is watchable and and lovely as an actor. So you're engaged with her whenever she's on screen. But the story was never about her, yeah. and that changed, like you know, slowly over the course of the next generation where you did get Crusher episodes and you did get Troy episodes and you did get Tashi R episodes and Ensign yeah. Rowe episodes. And so, you know, that was something that was really changing in the 90s in a way that like, you know, early, you know, early 90s and through to present day that there was an awakening of sorts. And it's interesting to look at like what Star Trek was doing in the 90s with the, with the Picard character and roles of, of, of men and mas- what masculinity is yes. because yeah. Picard, like, I don't want to have dinner with Picard. I don't want to hang out with Picard. He is up right and like <laughs> so cut off from his emotions that he has to have a lady sitting next to him telling him how to feel most of the time. So it was a, it was an interesting kind of dynamic for what we expected women to be and what we expected men to be and star trek like the next generation was ahead eventually got ahead of its time but and its conception of some of the characters was really kind of reductive in a way so that's why janeway is such a breath of fresh air because she is you know it's for me. It's all about Janeway and Cisco in terms of of, of the captains. I, I don't give two squirts about Kirk. I'm Picard is is too dry and emotionally cut off for me. But Janeway and Cisco are fully realized, uh, living, breathing, emotional human beings. Probably says a lot about me that I'd really like to have tea with John Luke Picard. Just... <laughs> he won't be nice to you. He'll, uh, <laughs> You'll just like sit there and stare. I know, we can uh, talk about Shakespeare. It would be lovely. <laughs> I want to have a meal with Cisco and I want to get drunk with Janeway. That's fair too. That's fair too. I, I, I definitely got the Janeway coffee mug from the recent uh, Voyager Indiegogo. <laughs> I just love how much coffee she drinks. <laughs> I mean, that was such a like a run on joke. Was It was coffee and bad cooking. And both yeah. were such fucked up kind of 
uh, narrow views of women. And I remember in, uh, one time uh, Kate came in uh, and she was like, really, another bad cooking joke? Like, really? <laughs> that's, that's what you guys have? And she was right. Like, she was right. It, like, yeah. there was a, a constant kind of like, isn't it funny that she take you know, drink so much coffee, which I just can't, you know, think about coffee and not think about bowel movements. So like, <laughs> it's, it's like, let's, let's not do that to this lady. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I always wonder if that was a Jerry Taylor thing. Like, did she drink a lot of coffee early on or was that just something that just came up because coffee's great? <laughs> I remember Jerry drinking a lot of water. Ah, oh, there you go. There you go. It was always a water bottle and she, she drank it in a very specific way. Like she would always like, you know, she would put her tongue in to seal the hole, then tip it and then release the valve. And I remember that was like the, I was like, I was like, Oh my God, like she's so specific and how she drinks out of a water bottle that I loved it because it wasn't just a twig. That is, that is both specific uh, and also a specific yeah. memory of that specific thing. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of, Jerry was amazing. Like Jerry invited us into her office to watch dailies. That was something that nobody has done before or since. Uh, she was really uh, a great leader. Amazing. Yeah, I can't say enough nice things about Jerry Taylor. Uh, I mean, Voyager was my first, you know, staff gig. And she, she was the really, the one who showed me, you know, this is what a showrunner is supposed to do. This is how you run a room. And this is how you create, you know, get everybody to, to give you their best, you know, creative selves. Uh, so I, I really got spoiled on that show. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, uh, listeners out there, you've probably seen that we've reached the end of the episode. Um, guys, uh, final thoughts on this before uh, we wrap up here? Lisa? Uh, not, nothing that we really haven't discussed so far, I gotta say. Uh, I mean, I think I'm with Brian that, you know, even, you know, messaging aside, I mean, I think it's, it's an average episode. I mean, it's it's okay. You yeah. know, I don't think it's one of our stinkers, but I don't think it's one of our best either. No, no, it's certainly, uh, yeah, it, it's it's not a stinker. It's problematic, um, but there are ideas and there is a conversation being generated around it, uh, which is always great. Um, and like I said, like my favorite part of the episode was working with Lisa. Well, on that note, we'll wrap things up here. Uh, Mr. Fuller, anything you want to plug? Anything you're working on right now? And uh, I'm just working away. Working away. Yeah. <laughs> Stuff you, you know, can't talk about. Fair enough. <laughs> uh, yeah, like uh, not, nothing really that's, um, uh, you know, it's so weird with it. Like whenever you're working with an IP that everybody's like, don't say anything. And you have to yeah. sign these like NDAs if they won't say anything. So I'm not saying anything right now. Fair you enough. Can talk fair about enough. the documentary. Oh, I'm working on a, a, a documentary that is about the history of queer people and oh, horror nice. films. So going back to the literary origins of, you know, Mary Shelley and Bram Stoker and Oscar Wilde and Horace Warpole and, uh, and the whole like creation of Gothic literature as a, um, you know, an origin story for queer story storytellers through, you know, James Whale, you know, all of the, the queer expressions of, of Hitchcock and, you know, through 
what was happening uh, in, in modern day horror and how we're seeing more queer characters now being represented and how you know, that's a far cry from the cruisings and the dress to kills and the silence of the lambs where queers were primarily the villains. So it's, it's a really interesting documentary. It's for Shudder and uh, we'll, we'll see it sometime in 2022. It's amazing. I love Shudder so much. It's easily, does really great stuff. It's the best forty-five dollars I've ever spent in my life. It's it's awesome. <laughs> um, uh, all right, listeners out there, thank you so much for being here again. Uh, if you want to get in touch with us, uh, you can find us on Twitter at Inglorious Treks Treksperts uh, or on Inglorious Treksperts or Glorious Trek. I've already forgotten. Um, somewhere on there, search Inglorious Treksperts, you'll find us, um, as well as on Facebook and Instagram. Uh, and uh, let us know how we're doing. And if you like the show, give us a nice five-star rating on uh, Apple Podcasts. Um, and so for my... Oh, and of course, we'd also like to thank um, our sound engineers, uh, Bill Ritter, as well as Mark Rivera and our producer at Electric Entertainment, um, Natalie Miscali, as well as our executive producers, Mark A. Altman and Dean Devlin. Um, so hope you'll join us here again for Lisa Klink and myself. Thank you very much for being here. And keep on trekking ingloriously, of course. Mr. Scott, what do you repeat what you just told us? About an hour ago, the bridge control started going crazy. Levers shifting by themselves, buttons being pushed, instrument readings changing. And on my monitor screen, I can see Mitchell smiling each time it happened. As if his ship and crew were almost a toy for his amusement. This show is produced by Dean Devlin and Mark A. Altman and is an Electric Surge Network production.